0: People need ordering 12 rules.
1: Hello, it's Sam. Just to say that there are some very minor technical issues on this episode with the recording. So sorry about that. People drop out just for like a few seconds at a time. Um, hopefully, it doesn't interrupt it too much and enjoy the episode. Hello. Welcome to. 12 rules for what. My name, as ever, is Sam. And we're very happy to be here with Joe Mulhall, who is a researcher with Hope Not Hate, which is an organization that will be, uh, I'm assuming, at least passingly familiar to every single person who has ever listened to this. Unless you are one of our, half of our listeners who live in Portland, in which case maybe, maybe not. But um, Hope Not Hate is a UK-based uh, anti-extremist organization, research organization in the UK. Um, Joe's got a new book out called Drums in the Distance, Journeys into the Global Far Right. And that's what we're going to be mostly kind of focusing our questions on today. But I wanted to kind of uh, frame you, maybe kind of not frame you, that sounds terrible, <laughs> but um, get a kind of picture of you personally. Um, in the book, towards the beginning, you tell somewhat of a kind of an anti-heroic, I might say, kind of like um, a way in which you started to be involved, first of all, in anti-fascism. Um, you say you've basically got an internship at um you know kind of uh hope not hate and yet here you are uh i think over a decade later right um, i know it
2: makes me feel old right
1: <laughs> right like so h- how did um what explains the discrepancy between sticking it out for such a long time and this kind of like almost kind of accidental beginning to your engagement with anti-fascism
2: yeah i mean i wanted to be really honest in the book right because there's there's lots of I mean, this is not an anti-fascist memoir. I hasten to add, but there is like all these books when uh, you know you read them, and everyone seems to turn up fully formed and just has always been, a, you know, violently opposed to fascism. And it, and, and like, it just wasn't the case for me. Do you know what I mean? I was uh, living in Canada at the time in a really bad band, I didn't have much going on, and the kind of the British National Party. I didn't like fascism, but wasn't particularly engaged. And I don't know if radicalized is the right word, but like. The job was, I went out and was campaigning in Dagenham and I just kept doing more and more campaigning. And at the time, this was this huge campaign, this big anti-fascist campaign. People from all over the country, even people from all over the world came to Dagenham to like uh, get involved in this campaign. And we spent, I spent nine months on those streets and in that community listening to what the far right had lied, how it had lied to those people. And every day we would see the BNP, we would see them on the streets. You know, it was Nick Griffin was the leader of the party, was there the whole time he was standing to be the MP. And it was really hard not to just get increasingly angry, right? It was it was hard not to get seeing it firsthand and speaking to the people that had been lied to by the British National Party. I mean, Dagenham had loads of economic problems going back decades. And the BNP had turned up and lied to them and said it was about immigration, it was about black people, it was about people that didn't look like them taking their jobs, taking their houses, all those traditional tropes, right? And seeing that on every uh, every day, I just got increasingly angry. Uh, and so it moved from this thing where I was slightly interested to it, where I just think any anyone who spends time looking at how well how fascism can act on a community, um, it's very very hard not to come away with it getting increasingly enthusiastic and increasingly angry angry and, and like the, when you say like what motivates or what allows that longevity to stick in there is is anger right? more than anything I'd love to say it was hope and happiness and, and all this sort of thing but it's about being angry at what these people do and so that's kind of I guess what motivates me to stay involved and then once I was in, uh. I spent more and more time at Hope Not Hate doing more and more different types of work. And again, it just each stage made me more angry or see, see the evils of fascism in different ways. And so I never kind of found a time where I thought, actually, this is all over now. It's finished. We can go home, you know.
1: But you didn't, did, have you sustained that level of emotional kind of uh, involvement? Or is it more, do, is there a, a space for dispassionateness? I mean, I'm not saying there should be perhaps, but I'm just
2: wondering, like, Is that uh, advisable to spend a decade being really angry? (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe it is. I don't know. No, I definitely wouldn't recommend it. But um, no, I mean, of course, it's not like I wake up every morning and I'm just, you know, get out of bed and I'm furious again. You know, Uh, it obviously comes in peaks and troughs around certain campaigns or certain events that are happening and sort of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it's not, I guess it's not just anger. I mean, you can't be angry. So there's all sorts of other things in there. Because there was, I mean, one of the things that, really actually probably kicked on to, to say I want to stay involved in hope or hate was we won that election right you know the people of Dagenham voted out the British National Party they lost all 12 councillors in the years that followed the BNP collapsed electorally actually um it was about victory as well it was about there was that sense of hope as well as the anger at what they were doing there was this actually we can make a difference and I think that's quite a motivating thing for anyone really yeah, for
1: sure. No, I mean, it's, uh, that's, uh, that's enough to, to get you through, I guess, uh, even a few years right? Um, of uh, future kind of um, you know, campaigning and so on. I wonder if we could maybe kind of define the object, right? The object in the title or the subtitle rather is the global far right. Um, and I wonder what you mean by that category and how important do you see, for example, the modifier global? How important do you see the modifier far? Like, are they interlinked or or is there there a kind of a, you know, would it be so much of a threat? Would it be so dangerous? Would it be so important if it wasn't global and so on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'll just answer that bit there. Yeah, I mean, I think that that the far right is is dangerous whether or not it's global or or if it's super local. (laughs) The politics that it engages in can have huge detrimental effects, whether or not that's on one particular street or one particular community or whether or not it's having this much more global effect uh, as I think we're seeing now. I mean, in terms of the far right I mean i I understand that why I see the far right as a very broad umbrella terminology right it's it's something that sits in, I mean in the uk from the right of the Conservative Party through to the most extreme neo-nazi terrorists and within that category of this kind of far right form of politics, you have kind of uh, there's kind of various elements there's the extreme far right, if you will, which i I argue in the book kind of essentially is the elements of the far right which completely reject democracy uh they reject. Popular sovereignty and majority rule completely, but the radical right. So, you know, the elements of that, in some senses, are the more moderate elements. They accept democracy, but they reject liberal democracy. They reject, uh, and of course, the minority rules and r- the rule of law and all those things that come with it. So, I think the the, the global element of politics, which rejects or essentially rejects the liberal political libertarianism or liberalism, sorry, egalitarian humanism, this broad form of politics that rejects these things in different ways, is global now. And by the global bit, in the, it's happening around the world, although it is, you know, it's happening with whether or not it was Trump in America, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, or all of these various radical right parties across Europe. Um, it's happening around the world, but it's also acting in a global way, in the way that the, the, these groups and individuals within the far right are increasingly acting across borders and collaboratively and conceptualizing the threat and the way they should fight in a global manner. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's both of those things. It's happening in different places simultaneously, but there is also a collaboration which makes it global. So you emphasize a kind of global context. What does that
1: mean about the way in which this politics is? Is it being homogenized by that globality? Is it being, uh, are things that are happening in Brazil uh, becoming more similar to what's happening in Europe uh, and so on? Or is it just that there are, as a kind of connections being formed that don't necessarily imply? That there is a, a linkage between these two things, because the way you tell it in the in the in the in the book right, is as a series of distinct chapters. You know, this is happening in Brazil, this is happening in America, this is happening in Europe, this is happening here, um, and of course, all those individual stories have these kind of global dimensions. But do you see it as a convergence onto a particular mode of politics that is globally distributed, or do you see it as something that's happening globally but has clear geographical demarcations? Right, it's perhaps more brutal in Brazil than it is in Europe at the moment, right? It's more um, kind of uh, particular to America, um, obviously in America than it is in, say, Australia or something like that. Like, what would you, how do you see the kind of the, the similarities and differences across this global scope?
2: Yeah, no, look, I think it's a great question. Right, In some ways, the differences are as, as stark as the similarities, right? Uh, and it, all of these things emerge out of their own historical roots, their own histories of ide- ideas, radicalism, racism, you know, imperialism, all of these various things uh, make that each of the ways that they emerge have their own specific uh, geographic, locational kind of things. You know, there is a huge difference between what's happening and the causes of the rise of Modi uh, from Bolsonaro and Brazil. Right? But but the reason I kind of wanted to tie them together is I do think that there is an interplay between them that's helping them happen, that's making these things happen simultaneously. <laughs> You know, uh, and like people have talked about in the, in the history of fashion about epochs being important. Uh, and this idea that when it starts to happen somewhere, it can start to happen elsewhere. And I think what it is, is is that the radical right or the far right, uh, part of their their sell to populations is we can change the world. You know, you're not unhappy, things aren't the way you want. We can change that. Now, for a long period of time, I think a lot of this politics, that's just sounded unrealistic. But when it starts to happen in one place, Uh, People can point to it and say, actually, this form of politics is changing that society there. Now, it's changing it in a way that we would obviously dislike, but it means that I think it means that the the projects of a far right party elsewhere in the world can sound more realistic because they can point to somewhere else and say, well, actually, look, it's happening there. And these things then interplay. You know, whether or not it's one election, you have a victory there, the the project starts to sound more feasible, someone else points to that, etc. And there's also, of course, uh, sharing of tactics. You know, if we look at the European far right, you know, the modernization programmes that happened through the the kind of 80s and 90s, all these far right parties are looking at each other. You know, as the F- Front National and Le Pen start to, to modernise the way that they look and the way that they behave and the style of their rhetoric, you start to see that reflected in the way that the British far right act and behave, and you start to see it uh, again also in the Scandinavian countries with people like Sweden Democrats, etc. Start to look at each other, and they start to share what's working and that obviously then means that they become more effective in and of themselves domestically. But also, it means that when they turn around and saying we are on the quest of a wave, we are going to change the world, it just sounds more plausible, I think. So, yes, they're very similar. They are in some ways have their own roots and their own histories. But I think no doubt, certainly in this globalised world and certainly in the age of the internet, the speed by which they can collaborate, the speed by which they share information and ideologies is in real time. I think we're starting to see them take on characteristics which are increasingly similar.
1: Yeah, I think there's a... So I'd recommend to listeners not only to read Joe's book, but could also um, maybe go back and have a listen to David Renton's Convergence on the Right, um, the episode we did with him, because in some ways he's looking at this same kind of thing about all these different parties coming around um, a a formulation of politics that is not fascist, right? It's not fascist in the sense senses that it was in the interwar period, um, but he's definitely on the far right. Um, Maybe you could kind of speak to the opening of the book, right? And hearing you talk about it, hearing you talk about the way in which these groups are kind of converging makes a lot more sense of this opening of the book, which is about the Polish National March um, where is essentially a massive international gathering of uh, parts of the far right. Like they're kind of, they're all coming together and they all go on this, this, this big march basically in Poland. Maybe you could just tell us something kind of concrete about how that march works. And then also there's this other fascinating dimension to it and kind of terrifying dimension to it um, which is that there's a um, that the in some ways the government attempts to both downplay the march and also co-opt its kind of energy in some sense. So I wonder if you could talk about the kind of dynamics of that globalism, or that, globalism is of course completely the wrong word um, of that um, that global formulation of the far right, and also then the the interaction that that march has in the national march in Poland has with the uh, the government in Poland, which is of course in some ways its own kind of far right thing.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I picked us to, to start the book with with that story, because I think it taps into a lot of the things we're seeing around the world. It's a good little almost like a microcosm or a case study of, of a lot of wider stuff that's going on. And so, so basically, it's the Polish Independence Day demonstration, which happens every year in November. And it's increasingly become one of the most important dates in the international. Podcast. And there is, I mean, I went back in November 2018. Uh, and I kind of opened the book by telling the story of that event there. And it's a really peculiar one in that the, the event itself attracts far-right figures from a, very, like across the spectrum of the far-right, but from all over the world, attracting back Polish nationalists from all over the world. And when you get to Poland on this day, the scale of the demonstration is pretty hard to, to comprehend. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people, and we're talking very explicitly far-right groups it's it's not like it's kind of oh they, they might be a little bit fascist i mean uh, there's the onr is one of the groups that runs it uh, the national radical camp and you know this is in some ways explicitly fascist you know and they have there's huge amounts of stalls but you also see fascist contingents from italy fours in and waver were there and then you saw far-right groupings from around especially around europe but even some from north america individuals that turn up and on that day, I mean, all Polish youth are another one of the kind of core organisers of it. This is like an explicitly anti-Semitic, sorry, anti-Semitic and, and homophobic group. When you get into that town centre there, it's, you know, thousands of red flares, people throwing sea cars up in the air, skinheads. And, and what was really terrifying about that event was, is it wasn't really policed as such. It was self-policed. You know, the, the line of the march was like mar- like li- li- lined by skinheads themselves. So a few days before the demonstration, um, the, the demonstration actually gets cancelled by the local council and turns around saying, you know, we don't want this. This is something that happens every year. It's it often ends up in uh, various forms of violence. And, of course, it just looks terribly internationally because you get hundreds, tens of thousands of fascists and far-right people from across the, the Europe turning up on, in the centre of Warsaw. But, of course, you've got to remember that when we talk about one of the things that's really scary that's happening in Europe is this mainstreaming and this normalisation. right? And, and the Polish government itself is far-right in that the Law and Justice Party, um, is a far right political party, and so what they decided to do on the day that this was back in two thousand seventeen was is they had their own march that went down exactly the same route, and it was a few paces in front of the fascist demonstration, and the fascist demonstration then followed it behind. And I think it was a really interesting case study, right? Because first of all, there was people from all over Europe. There was Tommy Robinson supporters from the UK. There was kind of alt right figures from North America, like Jack Posobiec came over for it. There was pre- proper traditional far-right, radical-right and fascist parties from Europe turning up with flags and banners. And all of this was happening in the centre of Poland, just metres away from the president who was marching, which, to all intents and purposes, was a nod and a wink to these vast crowds behind them that they, they supported or the Polish government was supporting what was going on. And, I mean, I put drums in the distance, because on that day, like, I remember I remember standing there and looking at the, the, the Polish president, and you could hear these drums from the ONA uh, kind of behind him. The drums were in the distance, if you will, and you could hear the drums of fascists, and there was a, you know, a president of a European Union country uh, accepting this and, and, and marching along the same route of them, even though there was this kind of fake little barrier between them. And I, so I think it's a really interesting and worrying case study of how normalised the far right have become in Europe, but also how international it is and how it operates with all these people from all over the world. Did you mean the ONR? So, ONR, sorry, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'm doing something. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to the ONA. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Don't yeah. worry, we,
1: we, we, we've got a question about the ONA. <laughs> <laughs> but a
0: different organisation. <laughs> Alex. Um, So I suppose, Hope Not Hate is primi- primarily known for, I suppose, research and undercover research, especially maybe, and putting out reports and you have this annual state of hate report. And I wondered how you kind of judge what kind of information you publish and who you research as well, because... Um, at least for us, um, you know, there's this new group, Pathological Alternative, which is, uh, I feel personally, is, uh, from my analysis, is kind of one of the threats in the UK at the moment. And you don't seem to have um, put too much out about them. I mean, you don't have, obviously you don't have to go into specific, specifics about your research, but also, is there a danger that because you've got this big footprint, that putting out lots of information on, certain obscure groups will just raise their profile or how how do you judge that
2: yeah no i think there's a couple of things there so it's definitely true to say that we sit on a a probably majority of the information that we that we gather right and for us it's about so i mean i'll take it in two parts one is how do we choose yeah i mean basically how how we choose we go after is who we think are most dangerous and and who and and so, that kind of dominates as a research team and as an organization. We sit down very regularly and work out where do we think the big threats are, who, who do we think is causing the most problems, and, and how are we going to get after them. And sometimes it means that we sit on information because we're trying to find the, uh, the best time to release it to cause the maximum impact. So, quite often, we might sit on it for a while pull it together because we know that if we really want to hit them we need to hit them simultaneously in different ways or it might be that for example you know an organisation that emerges we want to spend some time understanding them we want to have spent it obviously takes a lot of time to get people to get people inside to really understand them to map them to find out who's who get all the information and then we'll start to hit them I mean, on PA specifically, I agree. I mean, I think they're kind of one of the biggest threats in the UK without question. And we, we released a report in um, is it the end of 2019, beginning of 2000, no, in 2020 last year, saying like an overview of PA. And we've got lots more to come, obviously, on them. And, but sometimes is we kind of, as I say, we sit on it because we, sometimes we just don't want to put out a blog and we know it's not going to get an impact. But if we wait for a certain event to happen or we wait for something that we know that's coming down the line, and we package stuff up in a certain way, it's going to get more of a media hit, and it also means that we might have more leverage on media to, to pick it up, to go after it in the way we'd like to, or it might mean that we can get tech companies to, to, to take action in a certain way that we would prefer they did or whatever. So a lot of that is that, yeah. So, uh, And sometimes that ends up looking like, as you say, that we're just not talking about someone, or we're not talking about a certain group. Uh, invariably, if, if you think it's a threat, I'm sure that we'll think it's a threat too, and, and it's certainly invariably not that we're sitting by and just ignoring. it. You're absolutely right in terms of um, kind of the danger of elevating stuff. And it's, it's a big thing. I mean, sometimes one of our big concerns is, you know, we'll blow up a small group that is essentially quite irrelevant in some ways, or they're very small. And we, if we, start, we know if we start writing about them, all the local papers will pick it up. Or like an, uh, the Guardian might write an article about it. And all of a sudden you've got this group that's not particularly important. It's getting loads of national coverage. And and they might swell in size, or they might pick up donations. And so we we do try not to do that. Generally speaking, we only pull the trigger on an investigation if we think that there's going to be an impact at the back of it that we that we've weighed up. I.e., we think that you know, or in some cases when we just can't do it, like we've done stuff on um, the National Partisan Movement and the British Hand, both really small groups in the in the last couple of years that no one would have ever, no one really heard of except for people like ourselves and anti-fascists. But we come, came across information that, that involved stuff that we couldn't stop, so terror plots or terrorism that involved you know, a, a legitimate threat that we felt. And we're not in a situation to sit on that information, not least because if they go and do something, we'll obviously be arrested. We want to stop them engaging in terrorism. So sometimes our hands are forced a little bit to write stuff about smaller groups that we wouldn't want to. But generally speaking, I do think uh, as a movement, we there's always this ongoing debate, is you know within the end when to release information and what to release and how much and I'm definitely against kind of the drip feed effect, which is just whenever we find stuff, let's tell people about it because I don't think that necessarily is the way we cause the most impact on the far right.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, in in the book, um. It's a bit of a weird experience for me reading it because, you know, I've been involved in anti-fascism for a good proportion of the 2010s as well. And, um, you know, some of the events you've referred to, I was kind of, I suppose, on the other side of it, of the anti-fascist movement. Um, and it's understandable in a way why kind of militant anti-fascism or independent anti-fascist movements are kind of absent from the book um, because you, you hope not, it's not running a big movement or anything like that. Um, but I just wondered what you thought the role Like groups like the AFN, for example, what role do you think they play in combating the far right today?
2: Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, in some ways, the book is, as I say, the book focuses. The it's not like a history of the the anti-fascist movement. So it's very specific. As I say, I I very rarely talk about wider anti-fascist mobilisation in the book. Not that it, it wasn't important. I agree. I mean, I think hope not hate is just is a part of a broad movement, right? And and there's different parts of that movement serve so really different purposes, you know. And I think that some of the work that the AFN does in communities on the streets, in terms of kind of the more direct action, is something that hope not hate can't do or isn't doing it in certain ways. And so it, they, I think they I've always seen it as they complement each other in certain ways. Now I know that there's often a lot of skepticism about hope not hate in in those elements of the movements, and that's absolutely fine. But I think uh, one of the misconceptions sometimes is that because Hope Not Hate doesn't engage in, in certain forms of activism, right? And there's a whole host of reasons why we don't do that, um, is that we necessarily disagree with it or dislike it. And you know, in some cases, we will obviously dislike it or disagree with it. But I think you know the the, the kind of the emergence in the last decade of kind of much more national, much more local around the country is something that was hugely lacking, you know, in in the two thousand and tens, and so. I'm all for it. You know, I, th- I think that they're doing a huge amount of work. And I think there's also, you know, I think there's also a huge amount of groups out there doing really interesting research Research collective, whether or not it's Red Flare. You know, there's a whole sections within the anti-fascist movement that are producing really interesting research and landing punches on the far right around the country. So um, they're not, not in the book because I'd, I have a problem with them, or I disagree with them. They're not in the book because the book's not about that. So, I mean, that was kind of, maybe that doesn't come across. <laughs>
0: No, no, it, it did come across. I was just asking a question based on, you know, yeah, based on the kind of. It's it's interesting to get the take because oftentimes I suppose with people who are like in certain AFN groups or, or doing more direct action stuff as well, they kind of see Home Not Hate as a website that occasionally publishes information and doesn't really see, I doesn't really understand. I suppose. Uh, I, I mean, no, I. No, no, anyway. I. We can cut this bit out, I didn't really have a fond thought there, but it's interesting to see, it's interesting to note the 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 the, the gap that there is. You 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 kind of described uh, Hope Not Hate as part of a wider movement, but there's these huge gaps going
2: on. Yeah, and, and I think that to a certain extent is um, Hope Not Hate does all, all sorts of things, whether or not it's, you know, we're currently doing loads of lobbying around the online safety bill, right, about the way that we think that the internet, in terms of the regulations, etc., and being having those doors that are open is really useful for us to I think to, to do different types of anti-fascism right and and the, the only thing is I think that I do think there's a bit of a false picture of hope not hate which is that hope not hate is this fluffy thing that does bake sales etc and I try to get this through of course in the book a little bit which is often I remember UAF often regularly criticizing hope not hate saying you know why won't hope not hate do this that the other you won't come out into the streets etc but as I kind of make clear on the book, is part of the reason was is because Hope Not Hate was on the far right demonstrations, right? We had people inside groups. We were there on the streets ourselves, but doing whether or not it was photographing, whether or not it was being undercover in the groups. And um, so I think, that uh, you know, I've always slightly resented groups such as UF perspective and say, because we're not out on the streets and we're not with them, you know, with their placards and banners, we're not doing anti-fascism. And I disagree with that. I want to turn to
1: uh, UKIP one of the groups you discuss obviously in the book um you say they're not fascists we would agree obviously (laughs) they're obviously not fascists and yet hope not hate um makes the decision to to oppose them and this is a decision that you say is retrospectively obvious and i'm kind of interested what it is about hope oh sorry what is about ukip that makes it obvious in retrospect but not beforehand that they would have some sort of like far right um kind of dimension to them um I'm kind of interested what it is perhaps more kind of, you know, to kind of supplement Alex's question about this uh, in the other direction. What is it like, or what do you think is the purpose of a um, uh, an anti-extremist organization opposing the broader rights rather than just perhaps kind of the narrowly defined street movement far right? Because that's a question I think that in some ways the traditional anti-fascism that's often kind of more street based has struggles with to some extent. So I'm kind of interested in your strategic reflections on, on this.
2: Yeah, it was, was as I say, I mean, I guess in in the sense that at the time when we were discussing internally about do we go after UKIP, part of the question was, is as you say, UKIP's not fascist, right? And as an anti-fascist organisation, the question was, as as far-right politics becomes more mainstream and more normal, do we as an anti-fascist group follow it towards the mainstream and do more and go after groups that are not fascist? Right. Or is uh, the role of an anti-fascist group to say we are anti-fascists and so we only go after fascists? People who reach the threshold of fascism, they're our problem. We'll, we'll fight against them. And the stuff that goes on beyond those borders um, is not necessarily us. And so essentially it was a question, do we expand out or do actually we shrink back and do we spend more of our time looking after or looking at, sorry, kind of extreme neo-Nazi groups, um, the remnants of the BNP, the remnants of the National Front, those kind of more extreme groups, do we actually need to be a bit smaller and we just focus on them or do we say actually that the politics of UKIP is harmful in these other ways, and that is also we feel that is also something we should get involved in, and obviously, like when we looked at the harm that, that UKIP's politics, and kind of the xenophobia and then racism in there, etc. As I say, like looking back, I guess it was obviously we would go after these racists, you know, we would go after them electorally um, because they were engaging in racist xenophobic politics, etc. But it was. Break in terms of, I mean, Nigel Copsey's book on the history of British fascism. He, he writes about a little bit at the end, and he kind of asks, "Is this really anti-fascism anymore?" He talks about it as like an existential crisis for the wider anti-fascist movement, not just Hope Not Hate. And it was a real decision, right? Because it, it was about saying, "Is anti-fascism more than opposing fascism? Is it opposing everything else?" And and I, I think it's really good. Now, of course, that's led us into a world now where it's not just UKIP, it's not just the Brexit Party. There's also it's about you know Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. It's about all of these other things, which obviously is very different. And I think the reason it's important to have the debate is because I think obviously there's hugely different tactics required for different groups, right, and, and uh, different form And, like, the, uh, defining who we're going after and why we're going after them is really important for making sure we come up with tactics that are the most effective way to oppose them, you know. And so necessarily going after the right wing of the Conservative Party or going after the Brexit Party, we shouldn't be necessarily employing the same tactics that we did with the National Front and the British National Party or, or that we would with the National Action. Because they're not the same threat and they're not posing the same threat in the same way. And my, you know, the, the thing we were concerned about is that we were going to go and do exactly what we did against explicit fascists, against these other groups. And that's, uh, and we did in some ways, and in some ways that backfired, right? There was newspaper editorials in left-wing newspapers, but you know, the Jewish Chronicle as well, saying, "How dare you go after these people? Why don't you get back in your lane and go and fight fascists and and leave something like Ukip alone?" And in some ways, we were. Using the tactics that we'd used against fascists against non fascists, and, and some people found that uncomfortable. So, yeah, that's why I guess in hindsight it looks obvious because we now live in a world where some of the politics is so mainstream and so normalized. When we listen to like Priti Patel's speech recently you know, in our discussions about cross channel migration, and it's so mainstream the rhetoric, which was in some ways indistinguishable from far right rhetoric, it was just seen ludicrous for the anti-fascist movement to say we're only going to spend our time navel-gazing at this small group of swastika waivers in north london or something there's these huge things that are affecting society and affecting communities really badly it now seems really obvious that that would be the role of the wider anti-fascist movement but at the time i think it was it was a fundamental question about what is anti-fascism is it just about fascists
1: yeah i think that's a really interesting uh Yeah, I I, I broadly agree, I think. I think the other kind of question where anti-fascism reaches something like a a kind of a limit that's maybe even more kind of complicated and troubling is in its relationship to anti-racism like as a much more broadly defined um, struggle. So, of course, in 2020, there were globally massive anti-racist demonstrations under the banner of Black Lives Matter. Um, And I'm kind of wondering, how do you see anti-fascism as interlocking with or relating to anti-racism in this mode particularly you know this is kind of a a kind of a you know a really kind of intricate and delicate question um particularly when for many of those anti-racist movements right like the main target of their um fury right of their anger is um the police and the state and so on but um i think there's a kind of a um but with anti-fascism of course like um as you said mentioned earlier when there's a Um, you know kind of an imminent terrorist attack there's i think there's it's totally reasonable to be like okay well we're going to tell the police about this so this person is not murdered right or like these people are not killed i'm kind of wondering how it is that you navigate the tension perhaps between what seems like a kind of a a demand um to disengage from the state or disengage from the police in a broader kind of anti-racist context and the um what seems like the kind of the an urgent moral imperative of, of uh, engaging with the state um in a kind of a you know, a fairly kind of routinized way right uh, as a kind of anti-fascist organization how do you how do you navigate this tension or is it just does it not seem like tension?
2: no i mean it, the the beer like the, the black lives matter demonstrations and the and the huge like discussions in the uk around it i think they a wake up call for all of us i hope not hate, and i'm sure across the anti-fascist movement was having similar conversations as as um you know, there was a lot of, I think, legitimate criticism from anti-racism groups and anti-racists more broadly, saying like, you know, you spent you spent years looking at these organized fascists, you know, the, you know, and the definition we would like the, the distinction we would always make is we go after organized racists, right? It's not that we don't think there's a problem with societal racism, but we go after the ones when they organize, etc. And and it all started to sound a bit thin and, and didn't really hold. When, of course, you know, communities of color were turning around and saying our experiences is, is not. Britain first turning up outside our Score at it times, it's national action, you know, uh, do going on a certain march, etc. But actually the, the day-to-day experience of them is not the far right, it's this much more mainstream form. And I think discussion of Hope Not Hate about whether or not we had misconceptualised it in terms of we were looking at the far right as this cancerous tumour that hangs off the body politic and it was our job to kind of attempt to try and cut it loose. And if we cut it away, everything else would pretty much be OK, right, which was quite a naive way of looking at it. Rather than seeing it as a gangrenous limb, which is part of this poisoned body, if you will, and you know, I think there was questions about had we detached ourselves too much from political radicalism through discussions about capitalism, about, about wider discussions about race, imperialism, colonialism, all these things, because what we were actually doing was we had our head down, we were in our lane, and we were just going after fascists, and um, and so there was definitely that, you know, and I think those questions are still ongoing, and the things we're still talking about internally, and how does some, how does hope not hate fit into the Anti-fascist movement is one thing, but how does it fit into the wider anti-racist movement? And I, you know, I think there were some people at Open, I Hate that traditionally would have said we were an anti-racist organisation, and I'm not necessarily sure we were. Uh, we were obviously anti-racist, if you know what I mean, but it wasn't uh, what we did, if you will, and it was where, where do we sit as an ally to those struggles and to those movements rather than attempting to get in the way of them or to have any sort of leadership role in them. And the state things are a really difficult one, like how, where do you, and th- these were debates that were really big during the English Defence Leagues, days when it was about counter demonstrations versus state bans and you know there was only a kind of it's a bit of a myth that hope not hate constantly called for bans I think we called for three demonstrations to be banned and they were specific ones in places like Tower Hamlets and often that was with like long liaising with the local communities who didn't want the demonstrations to go ahead but again you know we are there is we there has always been this tension do we try to wield the power of the state towards anti-fascism to use it for example to cancel an EDL demonstration, fully understanding that those same powers could be used against progressive movements. You know, and the same question is do we what do we attempt to engage with social media and tech platforms to deplatform when again we are creating a, a rod for our own back in terms that if there's a change of politics it could come up against us? And the same thing, of course, as you say, when we talk about racist or misogynist policing, what's our relationship with the police? Now, we don't to me, there is a moral imperative when it comes to the police issue. Unless I can, unless we can stop ourselves as an anti-fascist movement in a certain attack, or we can actually actively protect um, a specific community the way when we know it's a threat, is then I think that we have a moral. Whatever we can, I and mean, in certain cases, that demands us speaking to the police. Do you know what I mean? I can't arrest someone who is planning to kill someone. I can't. I can't. I can't go and do it. I might not even know where that person is. Right? I'm not going to have to find their address. And in those cases i don't have any issue with going to the police you know and the same happens in certain cases with things like hate crime you know there's some there's some groups out there within the police that look specifically at hate crime that do really good work right but that doesn't mean that there's not a systemic issue within the police there's not a structural issue in the police and it's completely i think possible to call those issues out and talk about those issues and campaign around those issues while also not having a blanket position which says because of those issues we're not going to go to the police when I'm sitting in a Telegram chat and they're talking about bombing a mosque.
0: Just to follow that line on a little bit, um, I think I think the problem I have with with much of this kind of state anti-fascist view, which i is that, you know, when you start to call for for, you know, and I'm not saying your view on prescription and prevent and all that is is this, but I'm saying when, oftentimes when you start to call for groups to be prescribed, or for like uh, like people to be referred to prevent, for example. You're kind of bolstering the, the the very structures, like you know, prevent criminalizes and terrorizes uh, uh, the Muslim co- community whether they're doing planning Islamist terror or not. You know, and with prescription, I feel like there's a danger here when we prescribe groups or we deny them, not deny them a, if they if they see the de- democratic uh, a democratic way for achieving the, their ends, which are awful ends if they see that kind of being cut off, that there's no point going for elections or organising in communities, I mean, I'm referring to the far right here, or I suppose extremist, extremist, Islamist groups, then they will turn to much more radical action. And we, with with the the case of Jack Rainshaw, for example, after it was only after national action got prescribed that he started to plan to kill an MP. And so I wonder what you think about that. What do you think about prescription?
2: Yeah, I think there's a really interesting debate around prescription. I certainly, I certainly think it can be called for too widely, right? You know, I don't think that we should be calling for prescription of things like the BNP or, P. You know, I I saw people calling for the prescription of Britain First this week, right? they became the political party. I, I don't think that makes sense, and I think, I think prescriptions should only be used in the most extreme circumstances, right? And the, the extreme circumstances are when the gr- group is engaging in terrorist activity, and by by prescri- prescribing them, you're creating an additional lever by which you can stop them. Right, and I think there's a difference between should prescription happen and does it work, right? And if you look at something like National Action, when they were prescribed, they were prescribed, but nothing happened, right? Oh, the same happens if you look at Al Mujahidun, right? Anjum Chowdhury's group, they were constantly prescribing groups around Al Al-Mujar Haroon fronts, but they never did anything about it. N- next week, they would reform under a different name. So in that case, it doesn't do anything of use. But when the police then started to round up in the in the last six months or so, National Action members for being members of a group post the ban, all of a sudden they've hugely curtailed the effectiveness of the organization and those individuals because they're all, they're all in prison. Now it's not fixing the problem in the long term, but in certain cases it can destroy a movement, it can destroy an organization, if it's done in a way that means that they actually not only prescribe them, but then they act on it. So when they do meet up in numbers over four, they arrest them, they put them in prison. And so, I think it should be used extremely f- sparingly. And I think the way that the current government are doing it is peculiar in the sense that they keep banning groups that don't exist anymore, um, rather than banning it because it's groups that are actually mobilising. But I don't think it should be expanded out, and I don't think it's a tactic we can use to target the far right. And it's not going to be an effective way to deal with the broader problem. We shouldn't be expanding it out, say, let's get rid of groups we disagree with, for all the reasons you've kind of mentioned. It's only, I think, for the most extreme groups where it will allow individuals to be arrested and incarcerated um, on the extreme far right. Uh, and and so I think it should be used very, very sparingly. And that's basically groups that engage in violence and terror. Uh,
1: speaking of groups um, that don't exist, um, <laughs> that's a, uh, how's that for a segue? Um, the Order of the Nine Angles. Um, maybe you disagree they don't exist, but uh, I'm kind of interested in this case. Like, I think it's a really fascinating... Um, uh, kind of, uh, you yeah, complicated case about uh, extremist organization, uh, kind of a Satanist organization uh, that was then picked up. Its memes were kind of circulated amongst uh, extreme uh, right wing groups. So I wonder if you could make a kind of a case for the prescription of the Order of the Nine Angles. I'm kind of interested in in, 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 yeah, in how you see this particular case.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think the Order of Nine Angles does exist. Maybe soon we're going to prove it all. Um... So I can, I, you know, I completely understand people's scepticisms about Order Nine Angels, right? Because a lot of what's written about them is, you know, this this satanic cult that's engaging in culling and doing these weird sex ceremonies in the w- middle of the woods, etc. And there's all this fetishization of these weird books, etc. That they write, and I, and you know, I've got no interest in any of that. As an organisation, which uh, there is direct lineage that dates through the 1970s all the way up to today, and there's core activists involved, that's all provable. Uh, and and hopefully soon we'll be be publishing stuff that kind of proves that it does exist. And not just here, but groups and activists around the world. Uh, No, we're not talking enormous, we're not talking about enormous groups. But we've also got to remember, in some ways, an order of nine angles is not a formal group. It's like, it's not an an organization as such. You don't, you know, most of the individuals don't become official members. Some of them do, there is a membership route, But it's also a kind of ideology. And this ideology is something that we have seen pollute elements of the wider extreme far right through things like Atomwaffen division and groups that very concretely did exist. And elements of 09A literature, et cetera, is has been regularly found in individuals that have engaged in terror attacks or have been arrested planning terror attacks uh, in North America and Europe. And we've also seen some stuff in Australia as well. It's not to man say that Order of Nine Angles is a group that meets once a month and they all sit around a table and they all get their membership cards out and they say this is who we are and they all shake hands and go home. There are individuals that are officially members of this group, but it is also it is a it is a kind of a sewer which leaks out throughout the wider far right, polluting it with these certain literature and ideologies and ways of that they talk and the, what they're calling for. And in some ways, those ideas and ideologies are rooted, almost indistinguishable from like. Traditional fascistic ideas about Superman and higher men and all that sort of stuff, but I do think that as a result of this is in some ways it fetishizes the most extreme forms of violence. It calls and encourages individuals within the extreme far right to engage in it explicitly, especially like sexual violence and etc. And there are numerous cases which we can concretely prove to where it's happened. Uh, I think it's an extremely dangerous uh, kind of movement or a dangerous organization, however you want, kind of want to define. I think we need to spend less time talking about the stuff they write themselves about meeting in the woods and blood sacrificing and much more time talking about the literature etc which is being consumed by individuals that go on to form terror attacks and you know links to for example of those two people, two women up in Wembley recently, is an example in the UK but there's also been shootings in North America etc. It's, uh, it's a kind of tendency within the most extreme far right around the world and that's why I think it's important and interesting, and why we should prescribe it. In some ways, prescribing it allows just uh, the kind of being involved with it will mean that we can go after in a new way the most extreme and violent and terroristic elements of the extreme far right. It will give the state a tool to go after them in a way that we can't.
1: Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's a compelling account. I think I disagree with some of it, but I think it's a, it's a yeah, it's a compelling. Um, I'm kind of wondering about the um, how you see. Let's kind of move away from the the, the uh, questions about I hope and I hate strategy. Um, there's a really perplexing um, kind of uh, line in the book from Dan Stone, who argues that the post and this is just yeah I propose of, kind of very little. Uh, uh, Dan Stone has argued that the the post war period, um, which is uh, I guess the subject of the book in some ways, um, the post war period proper begins in 1989. So after the fall of, after the fall of uh, communism. I'm kind of fascinated by this remark. It's a very peculiar kind of remark. I wonder if you just kind of tell us what he, does he mean by this? And what do you think the significance of this is?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, I think Dunstone's is great, right? He's a historian at Royal Holloway. He, he wrote this book called What Happened to All That? I think, or maybe I've mis- got the name wrong. But um, yeah, no, So Goodbye to All That, the story of Europe since 1945, right? And his argument is, is that the further we get from the war, from the Second World War, the more impact is actually being felt. And he essentially, as you say, the years since 1989 should actually be really understood as what was actually the post-war years. And what he means by this is, is that from 1945 until 1989, <coughs> both East and West, in some ways, is frozen in aspect through this ideological struggle. And anti-fascism is a core way of understanding that. But different types. In, in the Eastern Bloc, anti-fascism becomes this oppressive, state-sanctioned uh, kind of doctrine, which was, you know, Despite the failures of denazification, it was a state sanctioned anti fascism. And in the West, it became a power about um, uh, kind of the struggle against the Nazis, national identity, all of these sorts of things, kind of popular anti fascism. And what he means is, is that, that this kind of the Europe, the Europe or the world was kind of frozen in this idea of the post war period. And it wasn't until after 1989 that actually, when it was kind of these, the, the lid was taken off. That these battles and discussions that hadn't been able to be had since the war actually start to happen in in, in much more earnest ways, and in some ways, what the, the, his argument is is that if we understand the sort of like the resurrection of the um, the kind of the far right around Europe, for example, or around the world, is because in some ways that politics was suppressed by the state-sanctioned anti-fascism of the East and the popular anti-fascism of the West. Uh, since those, that lid has come off it has allowed them to bubble back up and that's one of the reasons we're starting to kind of see these things come back and then he, he also essentially argues that we, are, we have a post-war consensus on both sides of the wall and that consensus has begun to crumble in the west it's kind of liberal democratic third way politics in the east it was obviously communism that post-war consensus has crumbled in the west with Thatcher and Reagan it's crumbled in the east with the, the end of the uh, Soviet Union and so everything's on the board again it's time to have a play you know um the memories of the second world war can all of a sudden be starting to discuss again essentially the essentially the fire blanket which suppressed the flames of far right politics across the continent has been let loose has been taken off and allowed all of these battles to take and and i think it's a really interesting way of looking at another reason a long term factor that helps us explain why how is it that a politics that we thought was generally electorally at least pretty much dead for 50, 60 years has ended up in a situation where the radical right is in parliamentary chambers across Europe.
0: I read that, I know, just to say, I, I read Dan Stone for Union. and I, I think it, the argument is compelling. Um, I wondered if, you, we, we, we've we talked about this on the show before, how you know, the, the, it's it's not enough for anti-fascists to rely on the memory or the kind of legacy of the Second World War and the, um, Britain's role within that war uh, in order to kind of further the anti-fascist politics of the day. People kind of Memories are kind of manipulated and altered, but they're also fading. And especially with the kind of, the giant kind of events that supersede Second World War, I'm thinking particularly about 9-11 and more recently the pandemic itself, has kind of given much more purchase to the far right, I think. So how do we find ways of uh, explaining fascism, explaining and kind of countering far right politics without the Second World War? Because I think, that's the kind going to become a kind
2: of obsolete uh idea yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head right is that for too long as a movement understandably right, right rightfully proud in <laughs> about fighting fascism in the second world war of course but you're right those events are completely historicized i mean anyone who went to the cable street uh, event at the weekend you know there was barely anyone there under 50 let alone under 30 um those historical events are increasingly fading into the past. This is also in, important for the Holocaust, right? The Holocaust is fading, becoming historicized, and fading into the background, mm-hmm. which means that the kind of, the symbol at the core, this kind of ultimate symbol of evil, the, the logical conclusion of fascism that had this huge sway on society throughout the post-war period will become less and less... Strong and powerful in terms of as, a, uh, as an explanation for why we have to mobilize against fascists. And the Second World War, you know, if you're, you know, kids at university at the moment were born after 9 11, right? And so this is, I think, we, we often talk about it how it's affecting the far right. So when you look at Holocaust denial, for example, you know, the big Holocaust deniers in the post war period, like Farisone and, and David Irving and those sorts of figures, they dedicated their life to to disproving the Holocaust, right? Whether or not they believed it happened, They knew it was important, and they dedicated their lives to these pseudo-academic tombs, etc. If you look at a lot of the contemporary Holocaust denial from the modern kind of far right online, it's mocking, it's juvenile, it's humorous, it's ironic. They don't take it with the same reverie, and that's because if you're like a 19, 18-year-old, 18, 19-year-old kid on the far right talking about the Holocaust, it's like talking about the Napoleonic Wars. It's like your great-great-grandparents in some cases. So in the same way that it's kind of changing for them, we have to find new moments of mobilisation. Now, I think we can still point to those touchstones, right? We can still talk to the war, we can still talk to Cable Street, we can still talk about Lewisham and those things because those things can mobilise a new generation. A TV show that's on BBC at the moment about the 62 group in the fight against uh, Colin Jordan, you know, there'll be kids watching that, that that'll mobilise them as well. So there's nothing wrong with pointing um, back to the history of the anti-fascist movement to try and mobilise new generations. But I completely agree with you. It's not going to be enough, right? We have to find ways to fire people up about something that's happening right now. And there's plenty of things that are happening right now that people should be angry about. But we can't just rely on the fact that, you know, we you know someone turns 60 and we hand them a book about Cable Street and they're going to be an active anti-fascist from there on in. So I agree with you. I don't think it's going to work. I don't necessarily have an answer for what we can replace it with. But I don't think it's about replacing it. I think it's about adding to it.
1: I'm wondering if... In the, I mean, so I think I agree partially with Dan Stone's kind of uh, prognosis there about the, um, sorry, diagnosis about the um, kind of fire blanket, as you put it, that's been kind of smothering in some ways the discussion of um, the Second World War and therefore uh, preventing the return of the radical right. But of course, the, the Cold War does have its own form of. Um, what I would describe, taking the kind of the, the broad view of the far right that you take in the book, I would describe there as being lots of far right movements in that post-war period, perhaps not um, any really successful or really dramatically successful kind of European style fascist movements, but a lot of far right movements. And there's a kind of a, there's a global organization of violence, you might say. That's a really great um, line of the book where you discuss the militia form of the management of violence. And that's kind of really uh, a great line, I think, because it. It, at least for me, made me think, okay, well, what are the other forms of the management of violence? You know, what, what is, is politics just the management of violence? Is it the kind of distribution of violence? Is it a question of, like, how we do this kind of thing? So I'm, that's a very kind of, uh, you yeah, know, wiffly kind of, like, way of thinking about uh, the question, perhaps. But I'm kind of interested in, like, if you see, uh, because the, the kind of anti-communism is, of course, the um, the main uh, form of, of far-right politics, both um, militant anti-communism in the form of, um, Far-right kind of uh, death squads, basically, uh, who in parts of the global south are trained by um, the American intelligence services to kill people or do it independently and so on. This is perhaps the main form of far-right politics in the Cold War. Um, All that is to say, looking into the future, there are two big things that I think are going to define politics for the next few decades. One of them is kind of US-China tensions, right, at the kind of the broadest scale. The other one is climate change. And you mentioned climate change in the book. Um, we can come onto that in a moment. I'm just, but I'm just kind of wondering, how do you see, do you think it's going to be relevant to far-right politics that there is this emerging kind of second Cold War, so-called, or you know, new Cold War or something like this? Do you think this is going to be relevant to far-right politics in the future as it was you know, relevant to far-right politics in the Cold War, the first Cold War? Um, or has the, of, has the politics of the far-right changed its scale so much that that's not really relevant to them anymore, um, or is it just so ingrained in the way in which say violence is organized on on a global scale that it doesn 't really matter if people who are organized racists um, think it's good or, or not um, that's a very complicated question. sorry about that but um, any, any thoughts on this
2: yeah no, I think the, I think the the kind of say the emergence this or the kind of, kind of America china. Confrontation, or whatever it's going to look like, I think it's going to be really important. And I think it'll be in some ways important, uh, you know. And I, I completely agree with you. I, I don't think Dan Stone's arguing that, that the kind of far right disappears. There's of clear, there's lots of far right activism. There's, there's, you know, the whole way through that period. I guess it's more the argument about in terms of the they are marginalised forces that are ostracised from mainstream debates because of these historical narratives, and they are then liberated to to come back out and be more broadly discussed and accepted. <laughs> But throughout that whole period, you're right. When you're talking about the Cold War, one of the things that was uh, the Cold War was great at doing was was engendering widespread nationalism, right? and it was uh, you know the existence of a like a viewable and formalized external enemy is a really useful way for mobilizing internal nationalism and and uh, you know the most extreme forms of xenophobia and jingoism, etc. We've already seen right when you look at you know Tommy Robinson in the UK or Stephen Yaxley-Lennon. His kind of racist anti-Chinese shirts over the last couple of years and and the increasing discussion of China, you know, the creation of this supposed rising force in the East that's going to uh, kind of attack the West, uh, it will be used and mobilized by conservative and nationalistic politicians. And any time that that happens, it normalizes the politics of the far right, right? Because, you know, the, the jump between patriotism and nationalism is not always that big and all those sorts of things. And so I think that absolutely this, this thing will continue to play an increasing role. And I think the far right are already talking about it around the world. They're already becoming, you know, if you look at a lot of the big, say, anti-Muslim players in North America, the so-called counter-jihad scene that became really influential after 9-11, a lot of those key players are now, what at the time they were attempting to wield state power and state oppression towards the Muslim communities in North America. They are now attempting to do the same against China and Chinese communities, etc. the kind of militarization against them, the surveillance state, all of those things. I think we're already seeing key far-right figures around the world shift their gaze towards this discussion and debate. And then the other one, yeah, you mentioned climate change. I think that's going to be complete. I mean, it's going to be completely fundamental to, absolutely, to everything, right? I mean, it's going to, you know, and I think everyone's increasingly realizing it. But for the far-right, I think we've spent too long as an anti-fascist movement understandably looking at far-right denial of climate change. And of course that's been really important and there's lots to say there and it still happens. But really I think the danger for us is when they start to co-opt climate change, when they start to talk more increasingly about resource nationalism, about the way that we deal with this is closing borders, hoarding resources, etc. The far-right have got ready-made arguments that are going to make and so those two, yeah, I agree with you completely that those two fundamental things, China and climate change, is going to completely affect the nature of the battle against the far right for the rest of our lives, I'd imagine.
0: So in the interest of self-promotion, I suppose, uh, there's a, we should point out that we are releasing a book coming out in March 2022 about that idea of the co-option of the uh, climate crisis by the far right and fascism called The Rise of Eco-Fascism with Polity Press. And so everyone should keep their eye out for that um yeah that was my contribution i was going to just promote our upcoming book uh so i'm sorry about that i have to you, that's 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 a, that's a, the a disgusting level of self-motion i do not endorse this uh, okay i'm a yeah i'm a dirty self-promoter
2: i look for no i look forward to it look i mean i think uh, you know I, I really look i look forward to it because um you know i agree i think we've spent i spent i mean the far right in power denies climate change and prohibits effective change against climate uh you know dealing with it but you know the days of, I mean, the European far right is increasingly not talking about denying climate change, except for the AFD, right? Uh, you know, if you look at the front national, it's about expanding out what what is the climate, what is the environment to include culture as well as you know, you know, and you know all those narratives around blood and soil, etc. So, you know, I think there needs to be loads of research done on it. So I'm excited to see the book.
1: There's I have one last question, which is perhaps the most difficult question of all. <laughs> um, Horkheimer has a famous line: um, if you don't want to talk about Uh, capitalism then you shouldn't talk about fascism do you agree is this a an important part of your thinking about it how would you understand that that quotation
2: so i i'm not a marxist right i don't um i don't believe that the marxist definition of fascism as as the most extreme form of capitalism is accurate and neither do i neither do i uh, yeah i think it's too myopic a way to understand the threat of fascism. I think if if the argument is, can we understand how fascism plays out with understanding, without understanding without you understanding capitalism? That, absolutely, that's true. We can't. You know, capitalism and neoliberalism are fundamental to understanding why fascism or and the extreme far right etc. has risen in the last three decades. Right, and I get really annoyed at. The, I think the the debate is overly binary, right, which is between. You know, social scientists which turn around and say, it's just not about economics at all. You know, if you look at the rise of the BNP, it happened during the longest period of uninterrupted economic growth in Britain. And you kind of want to shake them by the shoulders and say, go to Dagenham, go to Burnley, go to Stoke, go to Amber Valley and ask those communities economic growth, right? Clearly, capitalism and the oppressive nature of capitalism and the exploitation of communities and individuals tied into kind of capitalism at the moment with globalisation, outsourcing, all of those things have been fundamentally important to the rise, uh, the the resurrection of the far, far right around the world, right? And it, But it's, it's not that simple. And I don't think we can only point to economics. There are all these cultural factors there are. There is wider fears, etc. Now, I think a lot of those cultural fears are articulated in cultural ways, but are actually the deep root remains economics and capitalism. But yeah, I don't think, I think that when the historians, you know, in 100 years time right back at this, they'll say it's a bit of both. It was a bit of culture and it was a bit of uh, economics as well. But if Horkheimer's arguing that we can't understand fascism without understanding capitalism, I, I would agree with that.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. That's really good. Um, thank you so much, Joe. You've been very generous with your um, time. Joe's new book is out now. Um, who's out with? What, what's the publisher?
2: Uh, it's on Icon Books.
1: Yeah. Icon Books. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. Drums in the Distance, Journeys into the Global Far Right. Go and check it out. And I'll see you very soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Bye thanks a lot for listening if you enjoyed that then you can go over to patreon where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that we're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff you can read along with us we'll talk about it we'll have regular zoom calls it'll be great fun and on the higher tier we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what all the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project and thanks a lot for listening again and i'll see you very soon it's going down and you're invited for what they sell it we ain't buying there is no running there is no hiding there's only fighting or dying it's going down and you're invited for what they sell it we ain't buying there is no running There is no hiding, there's only fighting, or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action.
2: Go to witsgoingdown.org
1: for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate. And rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.
0: 12 Rules.